Don't fall in love with me yet We only recently met True, I'm in love with you But you might decide I'm a knock Give me a week or two to go absolutely cuckoo Then when you see your error Then you can flee in terror Like everybody else does I only tell you this cause Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am the Bull Goose Looney, your host, Stephen Buja, and joining me, as always, the one, the only, Amy Thomason. Amy, how are you doing this fine week? Uh, very good. I got to see the Special Olympics last weekend for my daughter, and it was amazing and inspirational, so if you ever... If you ever doubt mankind and their capacity for kindness, you should see not just the kids who are competing, but the spectators giving them love and support. Okay, that seems, I feel somewhat oddly appropriate given the film today, loosely, 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 loosely related. Um, As you know, folks, as you may or may not know, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, two-time Academy Award-winning director Milos Forman died at the age of 86. To honor him, we are looking back at his first Best Picture winner, 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, we have discussed his second, Amadeus, on a previous podcast. Uh, do check that out. I enjoyed that discussion very much. I really enjoy that film. But today, it's Cuckoo's Nest. And we start this, as we always do, with personal histories of this film. Amy, what is yours? I learned about this movie in one of the many books about movies I got when I was a teenager. And of course it was featured and my parents wouldn't let me see it for a while really, because I am a very, very sensitive person. And they were afraid that those are the kind of movies that like disturb me and get in my head much more than like a a horror slasher pick, but things like electroshock therapy, lobotomies, those are the kind of things that would disturb me. But I finally watched it and it, was amazing. And Jack Nicholson, who, by the way, as we record this, Jack Nicholson's birthday was yesterday. He's 81. Happy birthday, Mr. Happy Nicholson. birthday, Mr. Nicholson. Very, uh, thank you for the decades of great performances, of which this is among the highest of the highs, I would have to say. I feel like if you haven't seen Cuckoo's Nest, but you have seen a Jack Nicholson performance post-1975, you've kind of seen cuckoo's nest he plays crazy so well that at some point i think he's not even acting in it he's uh, a wacky guy in real life he's, my he's, uncle uh was his limo driver when he did uh the joker for batman oh wow so my uncle was a limo driver out in hollywood more stories on that when we cover extra movies because we've got that and he is he's a wacky guy but i think the brilliant thing about him is that there's definitely shades of differences in each of his performances because they are really nuanced. Yes. If you want to remember why he's great. And I think not only is this one of Jack Nicholson's best performances, it's one of those top 20 performances by an actor across the board. I could, I could, I could agree to that. Uh, let's see myself. I saw this young and uh, you know, my, my parents, you know, they, they love this movie. Anytime we eat, have juicy fruit in the house, it's always mm, juicy fruit. We just, my dad just loves that. Shout out to dad. And I, I once saw a, a my local library's production of the play that this is the movie is based off based off of 
uh, years ago, starring a, a good friend of mine. And I was struck by some of the differences. And uh, I understand that there are actually a lot of differences between the play, the book, and the movie. And I'm Very sure. So. And uh, and you have a re- you have, are currently reading the book. It's a book I own. It's a book that I started many, many times, but for some reason I couldn't get past the first chapter. I don't even know why. Okay. But I finally, and I'm going to give a plug out to audible.com right now. I got the book from Audible and John C. Riley, who I love as an actor, is narrating it. And it's like, I can't put it down. Every time I have 10 minutes, I sit and I listen to it because it is that good. And I started it and I'm already like six hours in. I started it Friday. Nice. Well, um, Audible, audible.com, if you are listening, we would love you to sponsor us. I'm just saying shameless plug on our behalf. Definitely, definitely. But John C. Riley is great. And also, I remember in New York they did a revival of the play, and the great Gary Sinise played McMurphy. And I remember thinking, I can see that. It's, It's a hard role for anyone to play because Jack Nicholson is so very good that I think you will always be compared to him no matter what he's he's the he's the gold standard but there are still people that I remember it is one of those cases though when I hear that other people were up for the part that I can actually say I can kind of see that James Caan when I found out James Caan was up for the part I wasn't like oh that would have been awful it's very like well yeah. In the 70s, I could see Jim, not the same way, but but James Caan, I think, he has that charisma. He does. There's, there's a, he's lacking the, he has an intensity, he's lacking the wild-eyed nature of, of Jack, though. But that's neither, that's neither here nor there. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was directed by Milos Forman, written by Lawrence Hubbin, Bo Goldman, no relation to William Goldman, based loosely and angrily on the novel by Ken Kesey. Starring Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, William Redfield, William Sampson, a young Brad Dourif, a young Danny DeVito, super young Christopher Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. Yes! Love the Scatman. Super great. And that took me a second. I was like, is that the same guy from The Shining? Yes, <laughs> and there are so there are, there are a lot of there are fun there are a lot of fun little shining moments in this in this movie that we can talk about and we are going to take a short break and come back and discuss the big haul that cuckoo's nest had at that year's academy awards the the dream started at the rialto theater in Passaic, new jersey a long time ago (laughs) but now gratification comes from all over the world in japan a reporter said you must have had a grand passion to make this picture and in france uh, director said, you must be fiercely proud. And they were both right. What is gratifying right now is to know that you share our pride and our passion with us. Uh, thank, thank yous must go to a magnificent cast and crew, to Kirk Douglas, who lived with it for 14 years, the people at Fantasy in Berkeley, to the people at United Artists all over the world, and to Arthur Krim, Eric Pleskow, and Mike Metavoy, who became believe, believers the first moment of contact with Cuckoo's Nest. And my love to Dorian, Josh, Athena, and Johnny. And dreams do come true.
think uh, it, it happened one night, picture 1937, the last time a film one picture director, actor, actress. I'd just like to really thank the Academy for all your support and to our really incredible cast and crew who I think we all learned something about working ensemble. And as Saul said, United Artists, the state of Oregon, and as Louise said, really to anybody who's got a dream and his possibilities that it's not gonna be a reality, just hang on, it's all right. It's gonna work out, thank you. The 48th Academy Awards took place on March 29th, 1976. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, became the second of three films to take home the Grand Slam. Pop quiz, what were the other two? It happened one night. Why can't I remember? It came later. It did definitely came later. Mm -hmm. I don't remember this. Give me a clue. Oh my God, you're such a terrible podcast host. It, um, Chianti? Oh, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, yes. Uh, so that uh, the Grand Slam is Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Leading, Best Actress, Leading, and uh, one of the Screenplay Awards, this one for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, very, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the other two. That one, we have one night and Silence of the Lambs. And I am always, certainly... The case you can make you can make the case that yes it deserved these five but and as I'm sure we will talk about I think the only film that truly truly deserves all five is it happened one night because Anthony Hopkins is in Silence of the Lamb for all of what ten minutes and I don't think Louise Fletcher is really leading lady no. best actress in this she is about the no. only actress in the movie. That does not necessarily make her the, the the main the main act the main actress right now, and we will we will talk about that certainly. The film was nominated for nine Academy Awards. So, what were the other four nominations as well? Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Brad Dory for Woo! Billy Bibbit. Worm Tongue, yeah, best, yeah. Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Music. Yes, the film uh, was originally going to be shot and lensed by uh, the great Haxel Wexler, but due to creative disagreements, because apparently Mila Schwarman was very hard to get along with, Bill Butler took over cinematography duties for the remainder of the film. Uh, famously, Jack Nixon and Foreman spoke through Butler to get notes, and they fought tooth and nail for the direction and how the movie was supposed to go. Uh, it turned out great, pretty much. However, uh, it's one of those uh, one of those stories of yore, one of the stories of legend about how uh, you know unstoppable forces come together and they just uh, they kind of butt heads. It's really great. And then it ends up being great. And, and it ends up being great. In Academy Award winning history. Yes, Got indeed. It. This um, the best actor win was the first of three for Jack Nicholson. Uh, the others were for supporting actor for. Fellow Best Picture winner, Terms of Endearments, and Best Actor as well for As Good As It Gets alongside underrated Actress. Underrated movie. Very underrated, alongside uh, Very Best underrated. Actress. I Hunt. love that movie. And this love also makes, yeah, and this also makes Jack uh, one of few, few, act, few main actors to have been in three or more actual Best Picture winners. You have Cuckoo's Nest, you have a Terms of Endearment, and you have The Departed. 
as well. And he was in a whole bunch of other nominees. As Good as It Gets nominated. Reds was nominated. Easy Rider was nominated. I think Five Easy Pieces is not. Was that him? It's, yes. He's been, he's, been in so, he's been in so many things. It's unreal. Uh, he joins Walter Brennan and Daniel Day-Lewis as the only male actors to win three Academy Awards for acting. Uh, Walter Brennan picked up three supporting. Jack picked up two lead and one acting. And only DDL has won all three for best actor. All are shy of the great Catherine Hepburn who picked up four, count them four, for best actress yes. in a leading role. Uh, this would be Louise Fletcher's only nomination uh, and win in her uh, surprisingly long career. This was actually the sort of the start of her career. She had been in a few things before, but this was really her breakout role that led to uh, not major success, but she certainly has appeared in a whole bunch of things and has still uh, been acting, I think, very recently She's as well. She's done a lot of stage work. Yeah, stage work and, uh, and television as well. Uh, yeah, she only had one other credited role in uh, Robert Altman's uh, Thieves Like Us, which was the year before, which I believe actually got her this part. Uh, the It was a famous night for Academy Award history. Fletcher gave a moving tribute to her parents in American Sign Language as part of her acceptance speech. For a lot of time, folks didn't know exactly what was going on, <laughs> but in, until they realized that she was she was signing. Uh, obviously, Marley Matlin, when she won for Children of a Lesser God several years later, would sign her entire speech as well as being the first deaf actress to win Best Leading Actress. Uh, it is, um, and it, it, it was very odd that uh, Mary Pickford was not, was uh, honored that night, regaled with the honorary award, legendary silent film actress as well. So you had this. A really lot of lot of lot of lot of silent silent is happening. So yeah. Yes. And Pickford Pickford is great. But oh, and speaking of uh, folks from the past, winning uh, George Burns, who we all know, lovable guy, chomping on the cigar, picked up supporting actor for his role in the uh, the Neil Simon play based movie, The Sunshine Boys, and it was actually his first film role in thirty eight years that got him that, and then he became sort of. This uh, this character, uh, who who I vaguely remember in a, in a bunch of things. Yeah, he, he he was great. He was great. However, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It it didn't just steamroll competition because the competition was mighty fierce that year. What was it up against? What four films were nominated for best picture well, that year? Just a couple of ones that maybe you heard of. Maybe you heard of. That's, that's what. What do we got? Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. Stanley Cooper. Nashville, directed by Robert Altman. Yeah, pretty good one. Jaws. And Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino. Yes. So that's, um, let's see here. You have Foreman, you have Stanley Kubrick, Robert Altman, Steven Spielberg, Sidney Lumet. Five of the greatest directors. Ever. Uh, ever. Uh, Sidney Lumet and Altman were like top of their games in the 70s. This was Spielberg's first ma- uh, major nomination. He would obviously win two more. Jaws brought in the term blockbuster. It was the most successful movie of the year. It's also a great, great... Don't judge it. Don't judge it on its sequel. Please do not. The first it movie... Summer, summers. 
summer's summer movies, man. Yeah, it did absolutely. It's uh, and I was looking at him like literally any of these films could have won, and I'd be like, yeah, all right. Uh, I have not seen justified. Yeah, you, you can totally justify. I haven't seen I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. Uh, just I just really haven't gotten around to it. I'm sorry, Stanley Kubrick. It's like one of the only Kubrick films I have not seen, but I hear impeccable great things. 75 was a decent year in film. Uh, the five no- fil- films nominated were certainly tops. There weren't that many movies released in theater looking over the release schedule. However, some of the ones that were there are pretty great movies, whether they are cult classics or whether they are just downright phenomenal films in their own right. What were some of the, the movies that came out in 1975? Rock Picture Show. Yeah. Yeah. Shampoo, which also won a lot of Academy Awards that year. It did. It did, yeah. Uh, the Return of the Pink Panther. Tommy, which really screwed with my head when I was a young theater person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, who, the Who will do that to you. <laughs> uh, the Stepford Wives. Monty Python and There the- you go. See, I was waiting for it. Monty Python and the Holy Grail came out. Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest... Uh, uh, Funniest screenplays of all time. Greatest cop-out ending in the history of film. Literally a cop-out ending. Uh, but you know what? You know what? My favorite movie that came out in 1975 after you know, jockeying for position with the, the five Best Picture nominees. Great little film called The Man Who Would Be King starring Michael Caine and Sean Connery. Fantastic film. Oh my God. It's about, it's about colonialism. Just run rampant. That, oh, it's amazing. Uh, definitely check it out. Check it out. Oh, and uh, for those uh, who want something a little less heady, Rollerball and Death Race 2000 also dropped that year. Amazing. Uh, It was a a fine year for movies. Uh, And, of course, the last last year, you know, because we just had the one blockbuster, and then it was, and then it's blockbusters all the way. You used to have these, like, heady little B-movies, and we are slowly turning away from that. Comes, you know, definitely kicks into overdrive two years later with the release of Star Wars. So that has been the Oscars of that year. We're going to take a short break, and when we finally return, we're going to talk One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Is which you're voluntary? Mm-hmm. Scanlon? Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. Um, um, you're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You ought to be out in a convertible while bird dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? It's funny about that. Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. Three geese in a flock. One flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. O-U-T spells out, goose swoops down, and plucks you out. A children's nursery rhyme that Ken Kesey used as the title for his book, originally about his experiences with the VA, I believe, uh, and after the war, became a bestseller, 
became a play, became a movie. Um, I like uh, like going off our English background a little bit. Why do you think Kessie used that line for the title of his book? One flew over the cuckoo's nest, given the rhyme that it is a part of. Just what what is he what is he trying to trying to say here? I think on a very <laughs> basic 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 level it is the hot referring to the hospital with the quote-unquote cuckoos mm-hmm. in the hospital okay and then the flying over it would be the one trying to escape it which would be rp mcmurphy right but is a uh... very simple not deep reading of it Okay. All right. Yeah. Goose. Yeah. And uh, but you know, he's the goose who he's the goose who swoops who swoops down and plucks you out. But really, the person who gets plucked out is Chief Chief Bromden, who, as I recall, who uh, backed me up on this. He is the point of view character in the book. Yes. 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 All right. Now we definitely have to talk about how does the book differ from the movie. Certainly, with the regard in with regards to it being Chief's story, it's very, very interesting because you see McMurphy from the perspective of one of the guys that's been there. He's been in there for such a long time. He says, "I think the only person that's been there longer is actually Nurse Ratched." It's also interesting because the book really delves into his hallucinations and he sees everything as being like machinery, like the name ratchet sounds like ratchet, which is a tool and -hmm. it's all machine like. And how obviously McMurphy comes in here and kind of disassembles everything and things start to change because of him being there. And, and we're probably going to get into this later, but one of the issues I had with the movie is that I think in the movie, one can almost see Louise Fletcher's perspective. Not that, I mean, you know, she's supposed to be kind of the villainess. In the book, she is much more manipulative. There's much more machination going on. You see how she also manipulates the doctors mm-hmm. and how the only reason they have the doctor they have is because she got rid of the other doctors and used her influence to get them to leave. And she's a much more evil character in the book than she is in the movie, where she just kind of seems like she's sort of about order and maintaining calm and following the rules. And here's a guy who doesn't like the rules. She's much darker and more manipulative in the book, which is hard because I love this movie so much. But honestly, listening to the book is making me see a lot of weaknesses in the movie which is tough because I really love this movie and I don't want to see these weaknesses. And it doesn't happen all the time. It's not just certain plot events happen. It's really the characters are much more extreme in the book. In the book. Yeah, they, I imagine they have a little more time to, to grow. Whereas here, you are, we have kind of a, a revolutionary story to tell. We got we to gotta bust out. We got to fight the system, as it were. And also, you have Jack Nicholson. And when and you have to look at mental institutions at the time, yeah, it is. So yeah, I, it's, 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 it's skating criti- criticism, but commentary going on at the same time. Yeah, but when you have Jack Nicholson, you put Jack Nicholson front and center, and you let him loose. And uh, I'm gonna, uh, like, I'm gonna ask this every time we talk about Jack. And unfortunately, uh, 
we've, we've, we, we, you and I have missed out on the, the other two films he was in, in a best picture, uh, picture for, but there are plenty others that we can discuss. Is, hey. is Jack even acting? Is, like, come, is, he, is he even acting in this? I think that Jack Nicholson is a lot like another actor. I think he's a lot like Gene Hackman, where it seems like he's not acting. It seems like, oh, he's not even acting. He's just playing himself. I remember hearing someone on Inside the Actor Studio talk about how Gene Hackman got like kicked out of the actor studio because they didn't think he was actually working or acting because he was just so natural. Mm-hmm. And I think Jack Nicholson is the same thing. I think that we think that's just how he is because he's so effortless in every movie he is in and he has enough of that little jack nicholson quirk in every role he's in but i do fight this i fight the fact that so many people are like ah he just plays himself (laughs) same guy every single time false true because if you see five easy pieces i think it's mostly clear if you see him in five easy pieces he does. He plays kind of a rebel sort of a guy, but his character is not the same as R.P. McMurphy. His character in this is definitely not the same as it was in um, A Few Good Men. Right. You know what I mean? He always kind of... But the thing about Jack Nicholson that just... Charisma... To say that he is charisma is an understatement. He's so charismatic. He is so charming. He's just, and he draws you in. And he's not a typically handsome Robert Redford attractive, but there's something very that pulls you in because he is so damn charming and so damn charismatic. And he's got those crazy eyes. And The Shining, same thing. He plays these sort of unhinged characters, yet they're all so different. And he doesn't just play quote unquote crazy people. There's so much depth and compassion in this role more than just, Oh, I'm crazy. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was watching this and going, yeah, he is approaching some line and he is just right there between he is going over the top and he's being, you know, and he's grounding himself, but he, Jack manages to walk the line so carefully that it does appear effortless. There is, there are moments when, like right, uh, right towards the end, uh, there's you know mad, there's madness descending, and he he has his chance to leave, and and, and you know he's like he you just you just got to go, but he's gonna stay because you know he cares about the guys on the on the ward, and all the camera does the camera just it just slowly zooms in on his face, and you see him. Turning over the possibilities, he do, he's, doesn't have the wild-eyed savagery, primal, primal like force that he has had like the rest of the movie. It's now he's contemplative. He's thinking about his actions and what it means. He's finally attached to something other than himself, and it's uh, and he's almost dreading the uh the consequences of that and it's and it's a fascinating fabulous uh understated part of the performance you can focus on everything i love when he's calling the baseball game just from memory like that that i think right there got him got him the oscar alone but there he he brings just enough of these touching 
moments to R.P. McMurphy. And he does it so well that you forget that Randall, he is literally a convicted pedophile. He uh, had he had sex with a 15-year-old girl, and he explains, like, you know, she looked 18 and that jack way. And yet somehow, and certainly in the 70s, you're rooting for him. There would be outrage aplenty at having a convicted pedophile be the main character of your movie these days, and it should obviously be Chief's, Chief's film. But, oh my God, he just through sheer force of the charisma and watchability that Jack Nicholson possesses. He makes you root for the guy. You're like, okay, of course I'm going to root for you, McMurphy, because you're this is the 70s and we fight the power and Nurse Ratchet is the power and you are you you just want to live your life and do your thing and the man, in this case the woman is keeping you down. So yeah, you you get on with your bad self and it's brilliant. It's so brilliant that like yes, James Can could have done this. But why? It's it this is this is Jack. Yeah. Forward front forward back side to side. This is everything. This is all he is. But what I like about it is that his character is not just oh this wild guy. That he is very selfish. Yeah. He's in there and he's in there for himself. But that he does change. And that throughout the course of the movie, when he starts to realize what's going on in the lives of the people, he's like, when he finds out that Billy Bibbit has a chance to leave, and he's like, why are you in here? Like You should, you're be, this, a, you should be out bird-dogging like, chicks. Yeah, you should be out there. And, and, like, and what's wrong with you? And that he's the only one who really acknowledges the chief as you know, a human being with feelings and all that stuff. Yeah, he's the only, he's the only he sane says, one. And, and he says... And it stops just becoming that he wants to get out, but he's like, I'm going to bring you with me, obviously. Right. Because he, he's developing attachments. He sees a, maybe bits of himself. Well, he, he, sees, he sees a caged goose that needs, needs freeing. And he doesn't know which goose he's going to get out, but he's going to get out one of these, especially that it's one of these the guys. Especially in the book, it really gets into, he's, he's institutionalized. He has been there for decades. Mm. That's his life. And so that he's the one that gets out and not just someone that's been there for a little bit of time. Yeah, who's, who's on voluntary, like, um, yes. like uh, William Redfield, like Cheswick, like, like, like all of that. Uh, oh, which, Cheswick! Yeah, Cheswick. And we, we do, I do have to come up. The, uh, the cast of Misfits here in the hospital, what do you, uh, what do you make of them? What, what, what makes them so lovable if they are lovable or reprehensible if they are reprehensible? I think they are very lovable. And in some ways, like I love as much as Jack Nicholson is clearly the star of the movie. Mm-hmm. It is such a good ensemble work as well. Yes. And, and not, it's sort of in that way, it, it has the strengths of like a Shawshank Redemption where you've got Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. You can't get better than them. They're amazing. But all the other prisoners, because I've seen this movie 700 times, <laughs> all add to it. And it's such a strong ensemble and Billy Bibby gets a lot of the credit because he's such a tragic character. Yeah. But I loved even the very, very baby-faced Danny DeVito. Oh, my with the God. Cards. And, and Cheswick, who's just, he's trying to stand up for himself. And when he's, he's clenching his hands and he's trying to get out his emotions. And tragically, spoiler alert, in the book, his character kills himself. Oh, 
Damn. And but it's why? awful. Because oh. what happens is is it's right after McMurphy finds out when they're in the pool that he can't get out whenever he wants, that he's been committed. Right. And so so McMurphy starts towing the line a little bit. And so Cheswick gets up and says, you know, the whole bit about Nurse Ratched, why can't we all have our cigarettes when we want our cigarettes? He stands up and he keeps looking over at McMurphy to back him up because McMurphy's usually like, oh, yeah, what about that? That's stupid. Why can't we have our cigarettes? And McMurphy doesn't back him up. Oh, yeah. Kind of in all the men sort of retreat back. And then the next time they go swimming, he goes to the bottom of the pool and he latches his fingers to this thing and he drowns himself. And it t- the lifeguard, McMurphy, they all try to pull him out. Oh, my God. Because he doesn't. Yeah, because McMurphy, in a way, fails him. And it's that impetus that lets McMurphy realize I'm having an effect on these people. Yes. Yeah. It's One a little. And that's really what changes them. Okay. I, I know think... that's a spoiler alert that has nothing to do with the movie, but I, but when I got to that scene, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> right. That didn't happen. It, this was just a delightful scene. And it, it, it's a surprisingly funny movie uh, it at is. times. It's, it's, it's great. And which I, th- I think I understand why they, uh, why they did, why they changed that because to have two suicides would be uh, that'd be a little too much, and it's funny enough where that is a that's too much tragedy. Where whereas you have the one, it become that's more impactful, especially also, especially because because Billy is so much more of an innocent in yes. all of this because he's the one who's clearly been feeling the manipulations from Ratchet because Ratchet always talks mother. about. Her, you know, her mother and how they're good friends and what would your mother think about it? And you can just, you that's that's where you see Ratchet really just like twisting all the knives. manipulative in the movie. But that scene also, when, when Cheswick was asking about the cigarettes, it also does show McMurphy as the hero because McMurphy's the one that gets up and gets him the cigarette. Right. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he's, he's withdrawn and he's just looking at his deck of cards because he's like, I can't get involved in this. I need to get out of here. Right. And yeah, it's... Mm-hmm excruciatingly painful okay well the, the and the guy who plays him I, just, I did you just want to hug him you do you do and uh there's young chris lloyd as uh oh. Tabor, who's just this angry angry guy uh and uh you know do i do gotta billy bibbit he's great i do gotta give a shout out to uh william redfield as harding um because he's a just this pompous jackass who's kind of hiding behind his intelligence as a way to say I'm better than you even though he's kind of broken uh, he, 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 he was he was great and I could kind of relate to him I and, felt and, bad and, and, yeah I, I felt bad for him I could and I thought eh, I would probably be this guy it's as terrible as, <laughs> as that it was that would be yeah it would annoy me if I was playing a game with someone and they kept like taking the pieces off or putting the hotels on Right, Monopoly. While you're trying to play Monopoly, as he is, and in the book, he's very highly intelligent. He's also supposed to be very, very good looking, and his wife is supposed to be this like bodacious blonde, and that's where his yeah paranoia, paranoia comes in. Comes yeah. in. And, and another thing I like about the entire group is that none of them are just raving lunatics. They're mm-hmm. all several degrees where there's something. Something, there's something a little off about it. Most of them realize it, and that they they need they need some help, and it it helps that this is uh, the movie is shot in you know it's 1975, but it takes place in 1963 when 
mental health services were vastly different than they were even 12 years later, certainly 50 years later as they are now, that um, a lot of the stuff, like, we could probably medicate this or there would be private psych, you know, private therapy sessions where you can help. There'd be a much more of a support system. And there was something else, and something else I noticed that one watches this and you go, oh, of course this is all, it's, it's a very guy, it's a male movie. You have Nurse Ratchet, you have one of the nurses. But it's, a, this is, it's, a, it's talking about how men feel and relate and kind of how they don't feel and relate to each other because this, these, are, these are the guys who were, maybe they fought in the war, maybe they, they grew up around, grew up in a very traditional society where they weren't allowed to be. be a Korean war vet. Yeah, yeah. Most of them have been in the military, yeah. Yeah, they're, they were, but they were raised in a society where talking about feelings is not what you do. They're, you're meant to bottle it down. You're like going to the, I bet it was a great shame that they were all either committed or voluntarily, God forbid, went to the hospital of their own accord because something was wrong. That must have brought, that must have been so painful for them. And uh, when you know they're not, they're so not used to talking about it, which makes the the therapy sessions so accurate. I suppose would be the word in that they're talking, but they are all so uncomfortable about it. Especially when they're talking to Nurse Ratchet, who is this very you know stern, manipulative, very cold, calculating woman. And a lot of their a lot of the issues may actually come from women. Harding has his issues with his wife. Billy Bibbit has his issues with the sort of not girlfriend that he yeah, I got loves. The it wasn't really his girlfriend. That it was some like piece of trash down the street. Right. That didn't you know deserve the time of day. But but um, what what I what I what I liked about the those scenes was that uh, they juxtapose it with McMurphy breaking busting them out on the bus and going fishing and how much more at peace and happy they all are in that it's in the a, a tradi- more traditional male role they aren't talking for it's once almost they're doing english majors it's something right out of ernest hemingway yeah get the women get the men on a fishing boat and like everything's peaceful and calm right and which is not to say there is not a time for talking. There is. Like, you, we all need to talk about our feelings. But if that's all you do, and certainly in a very sanitized, regimented manner, I think you are going to go maybe a little more crazy than everyone thinks you are. So you got to get out. You got you to gotta balance the, the action a little bit. You got to go out fishing. You got to get on a boat. You got to just hang out with your, with your boys not talking. You got to hang out with your boys doing something. You got to catch that 35 pound marlin and be a champ about it. It's, um, it's, it's a funny, it's a, it's, it's, it's a funny look at what works for, for people and how therapy has evolved. Cause I think, you know, certainly in the sixties therapy was very, it was talk, it was talk focused. This is what we're doing. We're going to just lock you up and occasionally deal with you. And that's, and that is a that is necessary. We need that. You need that. You also need to have this 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 uh, this McMurphy influence, as it were. 
going out and doing something. And that's really where the the struggle between in the film is. You have Ratchet, who is this very stern, strict authoritarian, and you have Murphy, who ain't about to play any of that game. And it's their their struggle. We have so many films that have won this picture that are about a struggle of ideologies. And I think this is a great example of going up against the man and ultimately uh you know losing well having well winning but not getting to enjoy the spoils of one's victories as we will as we will talk about but first of course i think we do have to talk about louise fletcher nurse ratchet you're you are saying that she is very different here than in the book and did that yes. take away from it completely Fletcher's performance. takes away from it. It completely takes away from it. In the book, one of the biggest struggles is during those therapy scenes is, first of all, the way that she's described in the book is so integral and makes so much sense for the character. Okay. Is she's very, uh, has very womanly figure and has very large breasts. And she really wears these starched uniforms to bind herself in. Okay. as a way of making herself more of the machine and less of a human being. And then during the therapy sessions, she pits them against each other. Really? Yeah. And so she'll sort of pick at one of the guy's weaknesses and make the other guys be like, yeah, Harding, no wonder your wife runs around on you. And they just kind of all, and um, McMurphy after the fact is like, this is like henpecking where they all swarm in on one guy and just attack him. And then afterwards, and they're encouraged to do it. And then afterwards they all sort of leave and they're all ashamed for what they've done. Right. But that's part of, they realize she won. She got me to bring out this ugliness, but they hide it all behind. Oh, this is very therapeutic to do this and blah, blah, blah. And it's sort of like each week they pick a different, she kind of picks a different weakness on someone. And that, it's a lot more sexual. It's that she's so repressed and that McMurphy is so overboard. Like he asks her how big her breasts are and stuff like that because he tries to rattle her. And at the end, what really changes the dynamic is when he's trying to strangle her after the Billy Bibbit thing, he rips open the front of her uniform and she's exposed. And that sort of like makes her lose her power over the men. Because they finally see her as a, oh, she's a woman. She's a person. She's not this machine. Not this cog. Okay. All right. Which and- I think, you know what I mean? It just, And I don't mean to give a whole synopsis. I'm sorry, audience members of the book, but it's so important. And I think that had they had any of that in the movie, that could have made such a difference in her character. If they had shown her really how she manipulated the doctors, how she picked the orderly. She picked the orderlies based on like how sadistic they were. And if they weren't sadistic enough, she'd get, she'd get rid of them. Wow. Wow. I mean, it was really, yeah, big time. Yeah. And the doctor also played more of a role because the McMurphy would get on the doctor's side and be like, Hey, why can't we turn the music down? And the doctor would be like, Oh, I, I agree. I think that's silly. We could just do this. And, you'd see Ratchet getting rattled that the doctor was going against her and with McMurphy. Okay. And now we have to swing back to Louise Fletcher. How is she in the role as written for Ratchet in this? She's fine. 
And that's really the farthest I can go with it. I think other actresses also could have played it. Right. To be honest, it's not one that I think is so, oh my gosh, Louise Fletcher, that was just, whew. I did think that she'd be a very good middle school teacher because she doesn't lose her cool. Yeah, you were you were you were you were telling me that uh, you've had some uh, you've had some kids demanding cigarettes of a yes. sort. Well, you have to, and the thing, and you do, you have to remain calm as a teacher because if you lose your cool, especially nowadays, kids film you, it goes on the internet, you lose your job. Right. Yeah. So not so, not so in the seventies. You can get away yeah, with seventies, um, but now you can't. You have to be calm. Yeah. And there were a couple moments, but I think it could have been pushed a little bit further. And I don't think she was the best actress. I think she was the best supporting actress. I, w- I would agree on best supporting actress. I do think she's better than fine, though. She There are a lot of slings and arrows that are thrown her way, and she does keep that, that cool. And um, I think her, because she's not a, a not a bodacious babe, as it were. She's not uh, busty. She like has this... She's more matronly than than really anything else, which I think works to the the visual advantage of of her. Uh, I do I do like her when like the cracks are beginning to form at the end when she's like she's getting riled up and it's finally it, the walls finally coming down. I think I think that is she has there's great acting in here. I don't think she was best actress because her character. Because of the nature of it, because she is the machine, she is a cog, she's the kind of the, the force that McMurphy goes up against. I, I think the, the lack of her arc really hinders the performance and makes it, uh, makes it too one-sided in, Murphy, in McMurphy's favor. Mm-hmm. Because... Like yeah, of course, Nurse Ratchet is wrong in this. Like, why would why would we ever think otherwise? She's the she's the bad guy, with very few redeeming traits. Even if she doesn't go far enough in you know showing her her callousness and her 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 iciness, it's 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 this is this is this is McMurphy show. We're we're here for him. Whereas I, if we had just a little more of her being, I think successful. And gentle with the patients, and that in that they actually kind of liked her and not were not just terrified of her. I think that would have would have worked more, certainly for the dramatic punches that happen on like successively right right towards the end. Like she has that you know right after Bibbit has um, committed suicide. I think he sl- did he slash his throat or slash his yeah. wrists. I think his throat. His throat. Oh. Yeah, and she just says we're going to proceed as normal. Like that's it's it's infuriating. Jack plays that so much better than than Ratchet plays that, and you go like, and it becomes this righteous takedown of the of the demon. When I think you almost want it to be like, oh, like I I understand why she wants to do that, and that's mm-hmm. poor that's poor choice. But really. But really, ultimately, what happens is that you're you're just on Jack, and it's a. I feel so good about him uh, choking choking out Ratchet. Oh, it was it was it was it was also one of those things like yeah, we can only do that in the seventies. I think he was actually nothing the life out of her while they filmed it, or or else or else Louise Fletcher is a has excellent command of her 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 body because that was terrifying. 
I, and I would have liked to have seen a moment of her trying to collect herself. And the thing that that's also hard is that like with teacher training, which it's not the same as being a nurse, but that's how we're told to be like, as a teacher, if there's a tragedy, we get an email the day before, like, don't talk about it. Just proceed as normal. If anybody needs to talk about this horrible tragedy that happened, send them to guidance. Like we can't be like, Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. You know what I mean? We aren't, we are specifically instructed not to do that, that we have to maintain. I know people during nine 11, when that was going on, were like, Oh, our teachers, it's like, they could not talk about it. Right. And, and, and I, and I, and I, her perspective a little bit that she does need to maintain. It seems cruel and callous, but it's also kind of what she needs to do. Right. And I understand that, but we never really get to know her as a person. We, we only know her as, Nurse Ratchet, and she, she's her, what was her first name? In Ma- that name, Miriam uh, Mildred. Mil- Mildred, yeah, very classic Major name. Boy. Yeah, but we never we never get to really know her, and I I like it when you have the two forces, and they're both on equal footing, because then it's more of a it's the the morality of the situation is much grayer. Than, um, than just like ah oh, this this is this is the bad guy and we're gonna go we're gonna go fight him and hooray, you know good. Can you anybody up against Nicholson? He who can like I said he's a convicted pedophile. He's in prison and he can just disarm us with a smile. Yeah, with that just, Nicholson smile and we're like oh we like you you're cool. He's so cool. He is. <laughs> he he's he is. But uh, another character that I think gets short shrift, Chief Bromden. Uh, So he's the point of view character from the book, uh, which I totally get. Because a a lot of the times, it's the Jack Sparrow syndrome. You can't have the crazy guy being the star. Unless, of course, that star is Jack Nicholson. You need to have someone a little more grounded, sort of seeing the awesomeness and all the horror from from a safe perch. And it's supposed to be... It's supposed to be them experiencing McMurphy. It's not supposed right. to be McMurphy experiencing them. You know what I'm saying? I, I do. I do. But we this need someone to say, this is how it is. This is how it is always. And then here's this guy, this crazy guy. Who comes in and, sh- and sh- shakes the tree. It's like Shawshank Redemption. We needed Red to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. You know we, we definitely, I, I totally hear that. What you know? What you know? What bothered me? It's like, why? And the book probably explains why is Chief even in there? He has I, hallucinations. Yes. Okay. I never got. I never got any of that. I just thought it he was. They never. They never explained it in the movie, and, and I thought like, okay, he's committed. Committed for what? Why is no, he committed? Very. He has. He hallucinates a hmm. lot, and it's interesting because it's like he talks about the fog and the people being sucked back into the fog. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's another thing. Why are these people in here? Some of them we know, some of them we don't. Right. I get, I get like the voluntary guys. I get like yeah. Harding's in there because he's, he's paranoid. Bibbit had a suicide attempt, I believe. Like, okay, I, I, I get that. But Chief, he's just there representing this sturdy oak of of a character and kind of this this the soft spoken character that McMurphy can sort of discover. Mm-hmm. Which does more for McMurphy, I think, than it does for Chief. Uh, Chief, he does have some great lines about uh, getting about a guy getting worked on, which which is brilliant, and that's you know explains 
what's happening in the movie. But I still wanted more from him. Like, I wanted more from Ratchet. It's at times, at times, Foreman is so enamored with Nicholson's performance and the fact that he has Jack Nicholson that and I And you think, can't blame him. I, no, definitely not blame him, but you, yes. I just want a little more, okay, we can, we can ratchet back the comedy, as it were, from like, all the, the group sessions, or even add a couple minutes just to give me a hint of what Chief is going through. Because Chief is very, he's very important. He's a very important character to the narrative. And yet, what uh, his lack of depth means is that the ending is a little less hopeful now than it was when I first saw it. It was like, yeah, Chief got out. It's now where, wait, where is he going? Is he going to Canada? That's a long way. Like, he's been in here a while. Like, how are his survivals? I'm like, I'm worried about that. More than I'm worried about pajamas. It looks like it's cold out. Yeah, it's or it's Oregon. Like it's always cold in Oregon. Come on, you're in the, the woods. Um, so yeah, I um, I was I was disappointed. I like the I like Will uh, Will Sampson uh, as a as as an actor. He's, he's uh, great and intimidating. The only the only guy who could physically meet the. Uh, requirements of the That's role where did they find this guy at a car dealership apparently yeah <laughs> which was which is hilarious and you know he had great moments i love i love his 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 crowd strutting down the basketball court when yeah. he realizes he can just basically plop the the ball in or deny the uh, the orderlies. And it must have been really hard to like rehearse those scenes and be stoic while Jack Nicholson's like woo doing his Jack Nicholson. Right. Or, 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 or like or, or Jack's on your shoulders doing things. Another another great seventies filmmaking. Like Jack, just get on his shoulders, climb the fence. Then we'll have the stunt guy go and and do that. But no. No harnesses or anything. It's just, yeah. Chief, don't drop them. It's great. <laughs> but I still, I, I miss I miss the Chief motivation. Because there's, there's not a lot of motivation for any of the supporting characters. McMurphy is trying to just game the system. He wants to not be in jail, essentially. So he's uh, he's not crazy. He's, I think he just has an antisocial personality disorder. I think that's maybe what they would call it nowadays. Medicaid him. They would they would do all sorts of things, and they would see they they would see through it in, in five in all of five minutes and not even go along with this That's nonsense. The in the in in the book, they're totally like, yeah, he's faking it. But the other thing about the chief is that in the book, he's he's a witness to all those scenes. He's in the room when the doctors and Nurse Ratchet are talking because he's the quiet guy who can yeah. prove, talks about it. He's like, yeah, they they talk about everything in front of me. Yeah, because he's just. He's just there. He's he's part of the he's he's part of the set at this point. And how Ratchet kind of keeps him there. Yeah, I mean, and Ratchet keeps McMurphy there as well because she's like, we can we can fix him. I think she sees McMurphy as his her project, as a way of saying, I'm going to break this person for his insolence against the the status quo and the order. ECT electroconvulsive therapy gets a bad rap in the movies and i honestly i think this is the movie that kind of is the reason why is is the reason why is it is it is a medically and scientifically like supported use of 
sending therapy, sending electricity through one's brain to help, uh, I don't entirely know, I'm not a doctor, but it's good for you. <laughs> Why is it seen as a bad thing here? Because it's used as punishment. Because it's, it's used not used therapeutically all the time in the film. In the film, it is used as punishment. Ah, yes, it's supposed to be a bad thing. When it, when, it, when I actually hear it, it actually does put a pep in your step and you can think a little clearer. My friend Brian's wife actually wanted me to contact her before we did this movie because she's studying um, medical humanities and like has studied all these things in depth. So hopefully, Monica, hopefully you will write in and give us some more background information about this. Oh, uh, Amy, I'm going to blame you and say you should have done this before we recorded this episode so we could have had a scientific mind. Telling yeah. us exactly what is. Yeah. But uh, ECT is the least of our worries here in this movie because let's, we are now, we've arrived at the ending. The ending of the film, McMurphy has been lobotomized for, I assume, attempted murder on Nurse Ratchet. And I, I, undoubtedly, she pulled the strings on that one. <laughs> There's that. And uh, the ending calls back to an earlier scene where McMurphy said, I'm going to pull up this water fountain, this very heavy water fountain. Toss through the window and escape. And we have Chief saying that they finally got you, got you, McMurphy, and unable to see McMurphy's free spirit snuffed out like that. McMurphy, uh, Chief smothers McMurphy. Is this a kindness that Chief does? I think it totally is. It's and it's a callback to the movie Amor, which literally is. The same exact ending, pretty, pretty much. much, without the busting out. It is. He wanted freedom, and if he had stayed as a vegetable where Ratchet could see him every day, she would have won. I agree. I think the killing of McMurphy is a, it's a mercy killing. It's a, it's a definitive kindness that Chief does. And he goes, pulls the water fountain out, breaks through the window and escapes and it's wonderful. And it's uh It really is. No matter how many times you see it. Chills, yeah, yeah, it chills the the, the music the works. Music. He's just he's running off and I know that it's, you know, it doesn't feel as impactful now, but it's still it's one of those iconic things that, you know, is you know, those Hollywood Hollywood moments that you just see and know. And like that's one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's great. And uh it's a bit of a what I, what I like is that it, it it's so it's so bittersweet that you want McMurphy to escape obviously cuz that's what I think in a more modern movie that's what would happen but that's not this is the 70s that's not how we're going to we're going to play this game someone's going to get out but somebody's got to got to got to pay the price for that and uh that's the lobotomy that McMurphy gets it's the it's the killing of the individuality of the uh, of the different because McMurphy is not crazy. He just doesn't follow the rules as laid down by society at that time. Um, yeah, sure, he's a criminal. Uh, he's done um, terrible things, but as we learn, he's also a, he's also a pur- purpose. And uh, maybe maybe he'd be better suited for going to the Ludovico process than say uh, a full frontal lobotomy mm-hmm. here. Shout out to Clockwork Orange, but um, uh, but he's kind of this outlier, this friction against which the status quo, as represented by Ratchet, bristles, and 
has to destroy. And it's because Ratchet doesn't kill McMurphy, because the system the system doesn't like physically like stop his heart and he put him in the ground. I think that is a a worse fate for him because that means that the system won. And that's that that's that's what that's what makes the ending powerful. I, I, on many levels, you have Chief escaping, but Chief putting you know putting this 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 caged goose who can't escape the the cuckoo's nest uh, down because that's the that's the, that's the, sometimes it's the only thing you can you can do when faced against such a monolithic uh, oppressor as the the hospital system is at that time. The other thing that it does is not just let the chief escape, but that all the other guys still have that belief. They think that he escaped. They're yeah. like, oh, did you hear what happened? So when Tabor hears the thing go through the window, he's like, oh, it's McMurphy. And they cling to that belief, and that belief gives them hope, and that's going to get them through. Yeah. They're not really left behind. They have that they can still have that hope. And in a way, McMurphy uh, McMurphy escaped. They're certainly going to be uh, very uh, have a rude awakening when they wake up and see McMurphy's dead there, lobotomized. But uh, I don't I don't know if lobotomies have any medical value as much anymore. But this was certainly this is a punishment for you because there was nothing physically wrong with him. I think you lobotomize when there's a defective part of your brain that is hurting you or killing you or something it's not meant to be just a we're like i don't like you so we're going to punish you but it is excellent cinematic shorthand for the killing of an individual literally the killing of an individual like the and it happens it happened a lot in, in it, real life in it happens so much oh good lord to a lot of women who just didn't play by the rules uh terrible thing so uh, we've talked, we've been up and down, back and forth on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Did the film deserve Best Picture that year? Yes. yes. Now, as as now that I could see some of the flaws and maybe things that could change, for me, the big competition that year, in my humble opinion, was Dog Day Afternoon and um, now I can't think of the other one. Jaws. Jaws. Okay. Yeah. Great movies. Perfect movies. Nothing I would change about either one of them. They both have, you know, cult followings. They both have a big following, and deservedly so. What I think those movies lack in comparison with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is that emotional payoff at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All iconic. They all have with, you know, I mean, Al Pacino, Attica, Attica. I mean, come on. Really? I mean, it's Al Pacino and it's most Al Pacino-ness. Jack Nicholson at his most Jack Nicholson-ness, and Steven Spielberg at his peak of... No, the beginning, the beginning of Spielberg. The beginning, the beginning. And so, I mean, really, the top, the, these are the greats at the top of their game. But I feel that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest really has that emotional payoff, which is why, as even though I've read the book and I see some weaknesses, I will still go back to that movie. I will still cheer at the end. I will get chills. I will still be amazed by Jack Nicholson. Mm. Excellent. Well said. I am going to say that this movie has not held up as well 
as some of the other films we have watched. It's still very good. It's still Jack Nicholson being amazing. It still has great moments. It's funny as hell at times. That's what that's that's what I forgot about this. How funny this could be, and how like natural the directing is is marvelous here. Just absolutely marvelous. It all takes place in basically one one set, but. And thinking about it, and thinking about it, and it was back and forth, back and forth. I gotta say, I would rather Jaws have won, um, because it's, blockbusters are gonna win anyways. But like blockbusters started, and Jaws to me is one of those perfect movies. It's just, it's just so good, and you have, you have all the all the actors, everyone just working together. I think maybe it's just because I am like huge Steven Spielberg fanboy slash apologist. I don't know. I think I think Jaws really is like the movie that defines 1975. Because it not only defined 1975, it started to define everything in the next 40 years came from Jaws. Even more so than Star Wars. We have the summer movie season. It can thank Jaws for its existence. Quick uh, question. Does Nicholson still get best... Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Or would, have, or would you have given it to Pacino or one of the other guys? No, I'd still give it. To, I'd still give it to Nicholson. Pacino's stunning in Dog Day Afternoon. He really is. Oh, Go see so, the movie, folks. You really, you really should. Um, but you know, if you picked any of these movies, we would probably find some flaws with them, and a case could be made that they all should have should have won. It should have been a five way tie of of best picture goodness that year. But I'm going to say Jaws. I'm going to say Jaws. I'm going to say I, I love Cuckoo's Nest. I am hip to its flaws. Nicholson overcomes so many of those as only Jack Nicholson, as only one of the greatest stars of all time can possibly do. Yeah, there's a reason. You leave the movie and you're like, this is why he's Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Letters. That's, that's why you just have to say Jack. And you know, and we know who you're talking about. There's no, what other Jack is it? Jack Palance? No, please, come on. Come on. Not, not, it's not, it's not happening. It's not happening. You have been listening to the Oscar Watch podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you are mad about what we have said, feel free to write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, both good and bad. And be sure to find us on social media at Oscar Watch Pod. Amy, where can folks find you? A Thomason11 on Twitter. All right, we are back sort of to our regularly scheduled program. Next week, we'll be checking out the 1931 Best Picture winner, Cimarron, which I got some words about, certainly. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, we'll see you on the red carpet. But it wasn't because I didn't know enough. Just knew too much